Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. A very good afternoon to you. Wonderful to be in your company. It is Wednesday afternoon. It's just gone 10 past 2 on this really warm Wednesday afternoon here in Joburg. Of course, it is also right at the beginning part of the month of Shvat. We are now on the third day of Shvat and thinking about that and its significance is uh, possibly and probably enough for us to be able to share about, to talk about and to think about um, in this program. So let's get right into it and think about the month of Shvat and what it means to us. I think that right away when we talk to the average individual and we think about Shvat, the first thing that pops into our heads, of course, is Tu Shvat, the 15th of Shvat, of course, that is named as one of the Rosh Hashanah. It is one of the heads of the year. We've got a Rosh Hashanah that comes about at the beginning of Tishrei, which uh, we call Rosh Hashanah. We've got a Rosh Hashanah um, at Pesach time, in Nisan time, and we've got a Rosh Hashanah here which is called Rosh Hashanah Le'ilanot. It's the Rosh Hashanah of the trees. We'll still have some time to discuss exactly what we've got to do with the Rosh Hashanah of the trees. Um, and perhaps it's more uh, pertinent to think about the fruit of the trees. It is all about the fruits that the trees produced. And this had a lot to do with the times when tithes needed to be brought to the Beit HaMikdash, when the Jewish people had to bring from their produce, they had to bring from their fruit and uh, bring it as a donation, as an offering to the temple and to the Kohanim and so on. And uh, when that all happened, there were certain practical questions that arose in how and when and what and from which produce Obviously, all of those things were discussed and all of those things are debated and the conclusions drawn. And, of course, um, when it comes to the bringing of fruit, Tu Bishvat, the 15th of Shvat, is a very significant date. It's a significant date for the fruit of the trees. And it has a bearing and it has a story to tell about this whole month because, of course, we're talking about fruit, we're talking about produce, and we're talking about rejuvenation. It is the time when the fruits come out. You know, I don't know about you, but um, certainly in our garden, um, so much was decimated in uh, the big hailstorm of uh, the end of uh, 2022, huge hailstorm that uh, took apart any fruits that we had. We even had an etrog, etrog growing in our garden, and it was knocked off in that hailstorm. Um, of course, there's rogim growing, etrog growing in this country usually are great for around Pesach time, kind, kind of comes out of the wrong, in the wrong season, of course. But uh, various other fruits and various other things that were damaged. But it's an amazing thing to see how now things start to rejuvenate, even in this country. And yes, we're not mirroring what happens in the northern climes or in the northern parts of the world, and particularly Israel, where we're here thinking about it becoming spring for us. Um, hopefully there'll be a respite to this uh, heat and um, the uh, cooler temperatures of autumn are uh, going to come about in the uh, not-too-far uh, future. And, uh, and then we'll go into our midwinter in about six months' time, five months' time or so. Um, but we think now about the northern climes. We think about Israel. We think about them having gotten over the winter. We think about the beginning, so to speak, of the advent of spring where things start to bud and to grow. Well, that's not really the full story of uh, Shvat because Shvat is still 
pretty cool. It's still pretty um, uh, cool weather. It's not yet quite into Adar and Nissan where real spring comes about. So perhaps that's somewhat of an incorrect interpretation. But it had a lot to do, it had everything to do with when the brachot, when the brachas of the year could first be seen. What do we mean? So the Talmud tells us that it was worked out that it takes four months for water to actually produce fruit. If we were to take the average tree, you water it, it's four months from watering that we could say that that water produced that fruit. And so if we go back four months from Tubishvat, from Chamishal Subishvat, which comes in the middle of this month, if we go back those four months, we will be standing at Sukkot, 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 which is the time that the world is judged for water. So really what they were saying with Chamishal Subishvat, with the 15th of Shvat, is that when it came to tithing, if you wanted to get right, whether the produce was produce of this year or, in fact, it was still the produce of last year, the cutoff time was Tubishvat, the 15th of Shvat. From the 15th of Shvat onwards, all fruits that uh, were produced, that were brought to the Beit HaMikdash, actually had a blessing, a bracha, that came from this year's water allotment from Shamayim, from heavens. Uh, and if it was before the 15th of Shvat, it was from last year. So it was kind of a technical, almost a, a date of um, a kind of a tax year end, particularly when it came to fruit, or a tax year beginning when it came to fruit. Um, and it is pegged at Tubishvat, Chamishos Bishvat. So therefore, when we think about the month of Shvat, it kind of has this highlight, the idea, I think, of transition. The idea of that transition that came about through new brachas, new blessings. And it's therefore so appropriate if we think about it, and I've often told you on this program that when we look back at um, the period of time that the Jewish people spent in the desert, we kind of have the mapping, the foundational um, set cast stones that were placed in the foundations of Jewish history from then on um, and into the future were all really, the die was cast in the desert. The time of the Jewish people getting out of Egypt and their travels, travails, difficulties, problems, issues that they confronted on the way from the time that they departed Egypt until the time that they got to Eretz Israel, that they got to the land of promise in Israel, that period of time, which we know was 40 years, was foundational. It was intrinsic to everything that actually happened thereafter. It was kind of the DNA, if you wish, of the Jewish people um, from that point onwards. And here, too, if we look back and we think about what happened in the desert at the beginning of the month of Shvat, it is quite phenomenal. It's quite amazing. The very last period of time of the Jewish people, the last 40 days that they spent actually in the desert, so to speak, was really coupled with, and uh, or let's rather frame it, uh, the last 40 days until they were free to go into uh, Eretz Yisrael under the leadership of Yeshua, of Joshua, the last 40 days actually of Moses' life, Moshe Rabbeinu was delivering to them his, call it his magnum opus, his last will and testament. He was giving them and repeating to them the book of Dvarim, the book of Deuteronomy. He was priming a 
a new generation who were going to see the Geula, who were going to see the redemption. They were going to cross over the Jordan. They were going to go into Israel, and they were going to see all the promises that they had waited for now for 40 years until the whole generation of the desert had died out, and Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses being one of them. He began his magnum opus, swan song, last speech on Rosh Chodesh Shvat, the beginning of Shvat, and he carried it on until his Demise until his departure from the Jewish people, until his departure from earth, so to speak, on the 7th of Adar. So those 40 days are mirrored at this period of time. It was transitional. It was a time when Moshe, when Moses was speaking to the new generation, those who were going to occupy Israel, he was priming them for redemption, priming them for the advent to Israel. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So having come out of the month of Tavis, which is scarred in a way by Asarab Tavis, the 10th of Tavis, the 10th of the month of Tavit, which we commemorated um, three or so weeks ago. It's the time of the beginning of destruction. It's the time of the beginning of the siege of Nebuchadnezzar in the time of the first temple, which led to the destruction of the temple eventually and led to actually this, the first um, Gola, the first diaspora, the first Golas um, out of Israel. And then that in turn kind of led to the second one, which happened, albeit a few hundred years later. But there was this tarnish, this difficulty, this problem, this issue that kind of started in the month of Tavis. And so therefore Tavis, the month that we just ended, is kind of a down sort of a month. When we come to Shvat, it's turnaround time, it's transition, it's change, it's upbeat. And it's kind of climbing up the stairs towards the month of Adar, which is Mishinichnas Adar Marbim Basimcha. When the month of Adar comes in in a month from now, we are Increasing in joy, and then that leads to Nissan and so on. We're sort of on this upward gradient. We're moving out of uh, difficulty, despair, a kind of a spiritual darkness, and it's getting lighter every day. It's getting brighter every day. And this is really the theme, actually, of this month of Shvat, this transition. But it was a transition, possibly, if we think about it, in terms of Moses, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, adding over to handing over the the reins of the Jewish people to his um, favorite disciple, uh, the great Joshua, Yeshua, who followed him and led the Jewish people into Israel. This is where it began. It began at the beginning of the month of Shvat. Yes, Moshe Rabbeinu had completed the 40 years in the desert as the leader of the Jewish people. He'd completed his 120 years. He was coming towards his 120th birthday, and it was on his birthday on the 7th of Adar that he actually passes, that he leaves um, the world. And it is 40 days before that, on the beginning of, at the beginning of the month of Shvat, that he knows that what he's got to do before he dies is he's got to leave this legacy. He's got to prime the people. He's got to teach them. He's got to make sure that the people who are going to occupy Israel have the same kind of vision and the same kind of um, understanding of Torah, of everything that they had to do and what they have to do. Remember, it was a huge change coming from a desert mentality in a desert environment, which actually was somewhat utopian, if you think about it. The people in the desert had water on whenever they wanted it. It just appeared out of rocks. And if they had food that either fell from heaven 
or came to them in the form of birds and so on that settled in the camp and allowed them to eat meat. And it was um, a utopian existence. Clothes grew on them. They didn't need um, anything. There were no ablution blocks. There was no need for sh- for for washing, for bathing, because the clouds of glory did all of that. They were protected. They were looked after. They were cocooned. They were in this a womb and now about to be born into a brand new world where they'd have to fend for themselves, where they'd have to put into play all the things of a physical world, but at the same time realizing just how important it was to integrate the teachings of Torah into everything that they did and to uplift the world, to change the world, to do the mitzvahs that pertained to that time and pertained to the land of Israel. This was huge. This was Magnificent! It was incredible. And Moshe Rabbeinu knew that he had to prime them. He had to teach them. He had to prepare them for this huge, huge change. And if we think about <coughs> this period of time, that's really what this is all about. It's about change is coming. It's about um, a future is on its way. It's about looking at the bright things in life. It's about turning the corner of difficulty and sadness, and hopefully we, hopefully we can do that too, of uh, all the troubles and all the travails over the last while, and look forward to and see an end to all the difficulties, the pain, the suffering, and an advancement into a brand new and beautiful uh, kind of an existence. And that's what Shvat is all about, and that's what this period of time is all about. Now, what also occurs in the month of Shvat, besides for Tu Bishvat, Chamishasa Bishvat, is a date that is hugely significant, which comes up in just on a week from now, and that is the 10th of Shvat, Yud Shvat. Now, Yud Shvat may not mean that much to you just off the bat, but if I tell you that to um, those who are followers of uh, Chabad Hasidus and those who think about uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's Yud Shvat, the day of the 10th of Shvat, has huge significance and huge importance because Yud Shvat, the 10th of Shvat in the year 1950, not all that long ago, was the date on which, the day on which the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, passed on and handed over the leadership of the Jewish people, although it was a year later that it actually came to fruition, but on Yud Shvat one year later, his son-in-law, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson took over the leadership of Chabad. And it was once again, if we can borrow a similar image, the idea of the previous Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe, as he's known, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, leading the way, priming the generation for what was about to come, appointing the new leader, seeing to it that everybody understood and knew what their task was, what their goal was, and what needed to be done, as uh, things had changed fundamentally. They'd come out of death and destruction and terrible times from Europe and everything that that meant, the Holocaust, the Nazis, the destruction of um, Jewry in Poland and in uh, Lithuania and in Russia and in all the uh, states that uh, had come under this most terrible and heinous crime of the Holocaust and the Nazi onslaught and then out of the war and so on. And the previous rabbi came to America in those years, in the years of the war actually, whisked out as he was from the Warsaw Ghetto in fact, and brought to 
um, Israel and brought to uh, um, to America, to New York, to the United States, where he started the campaign known as the Chabad movement, so to speak, in America and around the world, which began in earnest upon his arrival, upon his setting of his, of, 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 of his, of his uh, holy self upon the shores of New York and the shores of the United States to change the Jewish world and to bring that uh, flavor and that uh, dimension of Torah, of mitzvot, of outreach, of a campaign to reach out to every Jew that became the uh, real watchword of Chabad worldwide and is up until today. And it all began then under his watch and then on Yud Shvat in 1950 handed over to the next generation in a comparative way, in a similar way, to what we're talking about with Moshe Rabbeinu, with Moses and Joshua handing over um, to be able to herald the arrival um, of Mashiach in our way of thinking and, of course, of Eretz Yisrael, of the land of Israel, in the times of Yeshua, in the times of Joshua and the advent of the Jewish people to Israel. So when we think about um, the time of Shvat and now building up to Yud Shvat in particularly now as we're in this week before Yud Shvat we need to think about I think the special characters, the special people who were involved in bringing this all about and perhaps today to focus a little bit on the life of Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, the sixth Rebbe of Chabad Lubavitch he was actually one of the most remarkable, maybe um, kind of undervalued um, in a way. Uh, people don't always know that much about him. And maybe this was because perhaps of the greatness of his son-in-law who became so well-known and so widely respected in our times. But the previous Rebbe was one of the most remarkable Jewish perso- personalities of the 20th century. Um, he was not all that old. He was 70 years old, and he encountered every conceivable challenge, if we think about it, every challenge to Jewish life. We've mentioned before, there were the persecutions and the pogroms of Tsarist Russia. He had to endure communism's war on Judaism. He then came, as we mentioned, to America, and that American melting pot, the apathy, um, the scorn that existed towards Torah and its mitzvahs, the um, build-up of the uh, movements that tried to take Jews and, let's call it paravize, um, make the Jewish people assimilated in America, placing America first, and all that that meant. Um, the Rebbe came through, the previous Rebbe came through all of these things, and he was unique in that he not only experienced these um, dark, difficult, and challenging chapters in Jewish history, as did many in his generation, but as the leader of the Jewish people, he actually faced them down and sometimes single-handedly had to confront them, address them, and teach the new generation about what they had to do, but he ultimately prevailed. Um, and so perhaps let's dig a little deeper into his history. He was the only son of Rabbi Sholem Dovber, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad, um, who devoted himself to this child's education. Um, and it was really lovingly chronicled by Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, by the previous Rebbe, 
um, he wrote a diary. Um, he wrote an estimated 100,000 letters during his lifetime. Um, he was a, a huge writer, a scribe, and he kept diaries, and he kept a diary particularly about the way his father devoted himself to his education. He became his father's personal secretary, um, and his responsibilities included administering the uh, many, many Civil, civic and communal activities in which the Rebbe had been involved. Um, and this young Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, who was dressed, of course, in full Hasidic garb, um, was a familiar figure, strange but familiar uh, figure in the rooms of government officials, of ministers, the nobles of Moscow and Petersburg. And in 1895, he even participated in the great conference of religious and lay leaders in Kovno, and again in the following year in Vilna. Sometimes he was soft-spoken and words that came from his heart, and at times he was known to be quite audacious and threatening, but he was always fearless and determined, and he demanded the um, repeal of many, many terrible decrees against Jewish education, against Jews in general, stopping of pogroms, cessation of the government's program of forced enlightenment, etc., etc., etc. And there are so many stories um, that surround his um, attacks and his address to <coughs> the governments of the time on all of these matters. Um, he married Nechamadina, who was the daughter of Rabbi Avram Schneerson. Um, yes, many of these uh, marriages took place within the broader family. Um, she had been, and she was the granddaughter of the Tzernach Tzedek, the third Chabad Rebbe. And during the week celebrations that followed, followed his wedding, um, Rabbi Shalom Dovber, his father, announced the founding of the Chabad Yeshiva, Tom Chaitmimim. And the following year, he appointed his son to be the director of it. And it was there in a town in a place called Lubavitch in the pre-Soviet White Russia that Rabbi Yosef Yitzchok Schneerson trained a real army of his faithful followers um, under the impossible conditions um, of uh, the times that were then and the times that were to come to keep them alive, to keep them ablaze, to keep them fighting um, throughout the uh, onslaught that was the Soviet Union and everything that the Jews did at, at the time to stand up to it and very often um, actually to give up their lives on the uh, very uh, the self-sacrifice, the Mesiras Nefesh, that he called upon them to have, um, to go out to battle on behalf of the Jewish people, on behalf of Jewish education, Torah and mitzvahs. Uh, this was his campaign then, and it certainly carried forward into the future. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. We've been talking about the previous Lubavitch Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchok Schneerson, whose yard site actually is in a week from now on Yudshvat, and that marks the day on which his son-in-law, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, became the Lubavitch Rebbe. And therefore, as we were talking about, the time of transition, time of Shvat, time of transition, time when there are new brachas in the world, a time of transition where we think about the uh, neshama, the soul of a tzaddik that leaves this world and therefore kind of pervades everything else and can become and is 
everywhere at all times. And we had that, and we have that with Yud Shvat, with the 10th of Shvat coming up next week. The previous Rebbe leaves the world, um, and he hands it over. He prepared as much as Moshe Rabbeinu did um, to draw a comparison when he prepared the Jewish people for what was going to be coming at the time that he left them and they went into Israel, so too the previous rabbi had this kind of a a, uh, a thought process, I suppose, and in, in, through his writings and his talks and everything that he did. Um, so <coughs> when the previous rabbi's father, that is Rabbi Dov Ber, who we mentioned before, when he passed away in 1920, his son, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchok, assumed the leadership of uh, Russian Jewry, so to speak, just as communism's all-out war on Jewish life had begun moving really into high gear. And he had to fight with an all-consuming Mesiras Nefesh, a complete and absolute selfless devotion to both the physical and the spiritual needs of his fellow Jews with an absolutely unshakable faith in everything that he stood for, that he had learnt, that he taught, um, and that his father before him had stood for. But he really had to confront this terrible onslaught from uh, the Soviet Empire. Um, and he sent out teachers, and he sent out rabbis, he sent out people to uh, far-flung places all over, establishing a huge underground network, because, of course, in communist Russia, it wasn't exactly something that you could do about board an underground network of schools, of mikvahs, um, and uh, material, spiritual support that he gave. And the henchmen of Stalin at that time did everything that they possibly could to stop him. And in 1927, he was arrested. He was beaten. In fact, he was even sentenced to death. And he was exiled. But he stood his ground, and by international pressure, and its force, and all the campaigns that were um, brought to bear, um, he was finally allowed to actually leave the country. But as he left the Soviet Union, he left the emissaries and the underground network that he had um, established, the whole infrastructure, and they continued to grow, they continued to function, and they preserved the teachings of Torah and Hasidism, which um, continue actually to this very day. You know, when the communists fell and uh, a, a glasnost happened and uh, the gates of Russia were opened and the iron wall came tumbling down, um, there was this whole network that just it was like the seeds in the ground that um, the new arrivals there just had to water, and it came to it came it, it blossomed, it flourished, much like a very beautiful. Yudshvat or Tubishvat kind of a story. When the all-powerful communist regime began to crumble in the closing years of the 1980s, um, this network of schools, of outreach centers, and kosher food and religious services came, was able to come out of the, the cellars, the attics, and creep out and uh, become uh, part and parcel of Jewish life in Russia uh, as it is today. We'll continue uh, with the uh, summing up and the end of the story of the previous Rebbe right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So when the previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, eventually arrived in New York in 1940, 
Yes, it was 1940 that he arrived. He was in a, confined to a wheelchair. He was um, he had been battered and bruised and tortured, um, and uh, suffering tremendously from physical ailments. But his strength of uh, spiritual commitment, of commitment to Torah, and to Yiddishkeit, and to its furtherance in a really, really untested uh, space of America, which was kind of given over to materialism and money and uh, all the things that America stood for in the years before that, <coughs> coming into this, let's call it godly, uh, place devoid of godliness, a barren land, in, uh, so to speak. Here he arrived, and from his wheelchair, he never took no for an answer. Um, it was impossible to convince him that um, it was... A difficult task or an impossible task, as people were saying in those days, to overcome everything that um, was in America. But he said, America is nit andish. His favorite, the famous saying on arriving in America was, you've got to know America is no different, no different. Just like we confronted issues and we had difficulties, but we overcame in uh, um, the Tsarist times or in the communist times, we will too in America. And uh, so he set about establishing yeshivas and establishing um, uh, groups to, uh, to to study and he establishing um, help and healthcare uh, kind of uh, things to, to, to see to the well, welfare and the well-being of uh, Jewish uh, needs, to see to publications, huge publication system uh, that was set up and and um, he made sure that everything was prepared and everything was ready for um, his son-in-law to actually take over when he did upon the departure of the previous rabbi in 1950. He prepared the land. He laid it out before him. It was Lahavdil to make a uh, to draw a distinction or to draw a, a a similar narrative, let's say, between him and Moshe Rabbeinu. He had this incredible legacy that he was able to hand over and for it to, to continue as it has done and in a magnified way all over the world right up until today. So I'll be back with you again, same time, same place next week. Please God to pick up from there and talk about on Yudshvat itself um, some of uh, the further dimensions of what that significant time and day actually means to us. But until then, have a great rest of the week, a great Shabbat up ahead. Look forward to being back with you same time, same place on Judaism 101.9.